Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So it may not surprise you, this next statement that I'm going to make, but work is changing. Surprise, surprise. And in ways we know and in ways we probably haven't even begun to appreciate. Now, some of these changes have certainly been accelerated by the pandemic. One of the things we want to talk about is what are the key trends and what's happening apart from just the pandemic? And some of you may be wondering, as you're looking at all the AI and robotic upcoming, just what are the roles of humans given all of these technological changes? And what about generational changes and how do those have an impact on all of this? And we should be asking at the end of the day, what does it mean for you as an individual leader? What does it mean for your company? And what does it mean for you as an employee, particularly looking to advance your career? So what should, be do- should you be doing now? All right, my guest today is Alexandra Levitt. And Alexandra's goal is to prepare organizations to compete in the future business world. She's a formerly syndicated columnist for the Wall Street Journal, a writer for New York Times, Fast Company, and Forbes, and she's authored a bunch of books, three that I'm going to highlight today. One, They Don't Teach Corporate in College. I love that title. The one we're going to focus on in this first segment, Humanity Works, Merging People and Technologies in the Workplace of the Future. And the third one that I'm particularly fond of, Blind Spots, 10 Business Myths You Can't Afford to Believe on Your Career Path to Success. I should say that Alexandra is a partner with the global development firm People Results. She consults and writes on leadership development, technology, innovation, career, and workplace trends for numerous Fortune 500 companies, including companies like American Express, Canon, Deloitte, Intuit, Staples, and a whole bunch of others. She's spoken at um, Campbell Soup, McDonald's, Microsoft, Pepsi, Whirlpool. I think the list goes on. You get my drift. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Wanda. It's great to be here. I'm delighted. Um, This is, I think everybody is asking this question, sort of what's next? What's the role? But before I launch into that one, I have to ask everybody, what got you started? What are the questions that have most fascinated you in this journey? And I love this question because it really, to me, epitomizes the way I think everyone's career is going to evolve. And that's that it was very twisty. I actually became interested in the future way back in 1988. My dad and I were fans of science fiction and we were living nearby the headquarters of the World Future Society in Bethesda, Maryland. And at the time they were offering a tour of You could go there and learn about technologies that they thought would be around or available around now, around 2020. So this was back in 1988. And there was this one technology that I was fascinated by at the time called interactive television. And the idea was it would be a device. Everyone had their own. You would push a button and instantaneously you would get to hear the Cosby show episode that you had missed on Thursday night. Because in 1988, you had to wait until Thursday night to see the Cosby show. And if you missed it then, too bad for you. But with this new technology, you would be able to see it whenever you wanted. It was the first really, I would say, concrete implementation of entertainment on demand. And I was just absolutely 
stunned by this. And that was when I became hooked on the future. But I didn't actually incorporate futurism or foresight into my career until many years later when I had come into the corporate world as a high achieving student. You mentioned my book, They Don't Teach Corporate in College. That was the first one. And I wrote that book because I had had such a hard time making that transition. And I'd had to learn a lot of things the hard way and wanted to help other people who were young, but also high achievers, avoid some of the agita that I had experienced in my life. And that was when I wrote that book. But a byproduct of writing that book was I started getting asked to speak all around the country and then eventually the world about issues facing young professionals. And everyone started to ask me, well, what do you think of this new generation in 20, the, this new generation of 20 somethings? They're called the millennials because I'm just a couple of years older than the oldest millennials. And they were making a huge splash in the workforce and companies were wanting to know what's going to happen with them. What, and that was when I got my first taste of foresight because I had to start to look at trends that were percolating up through the market related to the millennials and, and make educated guesses and educated scenarios about how I thought they might drive their careers going forward and what were some of the variables that we would need to consider. And so my interest in the future way back from 1988 came full circle with my interest in helping young professionals, which eventually just became professionals in general. And it led to a, a career that I have now, which is a human capital or workplace workforce futurist where I look at the job market and I look at the way the workforce is structured and the way it's evolving and try to determine where are we going. And it's been a great journey. I've had a lot of fun. I'm always ready to pivot at a moment's notice. I know that scares some people, but for me, it's been exciting and I've really enjoyed it. I love that. A tour with your dad in mm -hmm. 1988 where you were just a small child, shall we say, young yep. child, and then that sets off the career. And the crazy thing is I remember interactive TV because I remember I had faculty colleague at the time mm -hmm. who was doing research on would this get more engagement and how would this change the marketing and advertising patterns and could people begin to vote right in the middle of the TV show and, you know, predict what next play should have been made and so on. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It hasn't quite gone that way. It's gone completely different ways, mm -hmm. but the trends were there for sure. Okay. So let's take all this brilliant wisdom um, and talk to me about the workplace trends. And what I want to know particularly is you say some things are changing and some things are accelerating. Mm -hmm. This isn't your parents' workplace. So tell me what's changing. Well, our parents in particular, uh, regardless of how old our parents are, unless we're, unless we're five or 10, then maybe our parents' workforce wasn't that different. But for those of us who are over the age of 10, our parents' workforce was characterized by long-time stable employment. The idea was to work for a single organization doing a job that you were probably trained for in university or at the very least high school. You, you might have gone to a technical school, but you would become something, and then you would be done being educated when you graduated from school or from a training program, and you'd proceed to do that job in a fairly narrow fashion for the next several decades. And what we have seen over the last few years is that has started to go away. So instead of being able to look at your boss or your boss's boss and say, oh, I know exactly how my career is going to proceed because I can just look at the person who's a little bit older than me, who's a little bit more senior to me. And I know exactly what's going to happen. Well, now, instead of going from point A to point B, 
you can go from point A to point D, from point A to point Z. There is no one career path that's going to look the same. Everybody is going to have their own. And I think that that trend has been around for a couple of years now. And it's not necessarily accelerated by the pandemic, although I think what the pandemic is doing is giving people a lot more ownership over their time, their individual career paths, and their professional development. And so if you think about what the the implications of that are, Wanda, the implications are that people are going to start having more of a say in what they are doing, what direction they're taking. And also you have the, the trend that's related to this, which is that organizations during the pandemic have had to leverage internal talent pools mm-hmm. because they have had some areas of their business that have been decimated and other areas of their business that are going like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. And so what you see happening is that companies that are, are longer term thinkers are saying, I don't want to just let people go who are trusted, reliable employees just because their area of the business is is not happening right now, how can I move them around? And so you have that coupled with the trend of individuals taking ownership and access to their professional development. And you see that people are going to be customizing their careers in real time in response to marketplace demands. So again, I think this was already there, but I think that it's been accelerated because of business necessities. Beforehand, we had some resistance to this trend of career customization because managers didn't want to move their people. They were happy with their people being where they were. And there was no real need for people to change around and become as broadly skilled as possible. But now with with COVID-19, we see that that is no longer the case. And so it's in business's best interest to move people around. Right. Not necessarily the managers, though, by the way. Yeah, that's still kind of a problem. I want to come back and make a comment on a couple of these, because I think you said a lot there that's really worth highlighting. So we've been saying for a long time that long-term employment is gone, that you're not likely to start with a company and finish with a company. That we know, and that trend is just accelerating, not decelerating. But you said something really important here, which is highly relevant to the topic of this show and to my book, and that is typically in prior generations, you would have been trained for a job. You would expect to do that job, and you would expect largely to follow your boss all the way up the corporate hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so you could look at boss or boss's boss and say, Mm -hmm. I know what I need to do next. Mm -hmm. Right. So in my language, that means you become the expert in that area. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's happened is our areas of expertise have become so narrow, so tiny, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't sustain a long-term career, and it can go away. Mm -hmm. So this notion that now I have to be able to think that I can't look up and see my career. So what I'm hearing people say to me all the time on their careers is, I don't know what's next. Yeah. And their managers, by the way, can't help them. Yeah. Because neither do their managers know. And that's the part that is freaking everybody out, I think, yeah. in part. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting. We've been talking about, you know, this notion of career ladders that you move sideways lots of occasions in order to have more opportunities. And I think that's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think comfort with uncertainty is something that human beings find difficult, yeah. understandably, but that is probably the biggest thing that we all need to do as a result of this pandemic is be comfortable with the fact that we aren't going to know. Yeah, We aren't. So all yeah. we can do is, is take intelligent steps to protect ourselves from 
disruption and make sure that we are as prepared as we can be giving ourselves a variety of options Yeah, because we, we can't know. And I know that makes people nervous. Yep. And again, that's understandable, but it is something that coming out of this pandemic, especially, I think we all have to work on. I like that one. And that notion of creating options. I may not know which one I'm going to need to pursue, but I know I've got at least three or four options and I will adjust accordingly. You said another thing, though, that I think is really interesting, that in this pandemic, people have realized that they can take more ownership of their time, of their career path and of their development. And I think the latter has a big need. Mm-hmm. Because, and in fact, it's the reason we've created the subscription service out of the comfortzone.com for exactly that purpose is that you can't afford to wait until the company offers that next training program for you. Mm-hmm. And if your career doesn't look like everybody else's, how can you possibly know what the next piece is that you, the company can't know what the next piece is that you're going to need? So I think that, I think all of those are really important. Um, and not just wait for your manager to explain it to me. Okay, now you also talk about robotic and AI trends. Mm-hmm. So artificial intelligence or digitalization or whatever your favorite topic is, word is of the day. What are you seeing? What do you think is going to happen there? So this is an interesting one too, because clearly in the workforce futures space, we've been talking about uh, the convergence of machine and human um, workers for many, many years. Right. But the, the reality of this was that it was moving very slowly. Digital transformation, whereby a lot of organizational processes were driven by technology, this was just kind of painfully slow. But what we have seen, I think there was a KPMG study that came out recently that said that the average organization has progressed six years in terms of their digital transformation in the past six months due to COVID-19. So one thing we're seeing is that it's just, it's gotten a lot faster. And frankly, to me, it's gotten to where it really should have been a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. The technology was there. It was just like interactive television, going back to that. Like the technology for that has been there since 1988, but it was slow on the uptake. Well, it's the same thing with digital transformation in the corporation. We had the ability to to integrate a lot of technology and we just didn't do it. So now we see that technology is at the intersection of everything we do and that what we were talking about as the future of work is no longer the future, (laughs) which thrills me. I'm so excited by that. I'm like, I used to have to call it the future of work, but now everyone thinks it's, well, this is what's happening now. It's like, well, (laughs) yes, but five years ago, it was the future (laughs) Um, when I was talking about it. So it is really, really exciting to see. But the the main point I want to make about this one, it's the same thing I was saying before COVID-19, which is that. There's going to be a lot of technology that is facilitating um, learning, facilitating decision-making, facilitating um, humans being able to do work that's more strategic and less routine. But I do think that sometimes the role of machines is overstated. Still, we have machines that, that are good at particular things, and we have human beings that are good at particular things. And what leaders need to be doing is not just blindly automating large segments of their employee population, but looking at the work in a deconstructed way. So what is the task that we need to get done? And then where can our machines add value and where can our humans add value? And where you inevitably see the breakdown is that humans have things like judgment and intuition and interpersonal skills that allow us to communicate things effectively to other people, to persuade, to explain things in simple terms. And machines have the ability to 
I don't know, translate a large variety of data um, coming from multiple sources. They do it very quickly. They do it without errors. And so there's a place for both. But with most jobs, we're still seeing that some of it can be automated. Some of it can be taken over by machines. But a lot of it still requires that human intervention. And this is called the human in the loop. Wherever you insert a machine into a human-driven process, you need a human to build it, to figure out how it's going to be rolled out, to manage it, to fix it when it breaks, and then to determine how to redeploy it. Well, that's a lot of people that still need to be involved. And then there's another aspect of this where whenever the machine comes out with a report or a recommendation, there's going to be human decision makers that are questioning whether or not we trust it. Is this ethical? Is this taking into account all of the variables? Or is it just looking at the bottom line? And you need people to be able to explain how the machine came up with that report Mm -hmm. and, again, translate it into effective language that will help leaders make decisions. So that's a lot of new job categories that are going to be arising because previously we didn't need people to explain what machines were doing because the machines were not involved. Now, I think over the next five to 10 years, what we're going to be seeing more of is that machines are getting smarter. Mm -hmm. So with machine learning and natural language processing and algorithms, really machines are going to be able to contribute in a more sophisticated way. So they'll start to, through artificial general intelligence, have a job, but then be able to make decisions independently, as opposed to just following a simple program or answering a simple question, doing a simple task. And that's going to be interesting because then we have to determine, is their judgment reliable? <laughs> and again, so you're still going to need that human participation, but you're, you, we are going to see them encroach a little bit on what has traditionally been human work. And so what we need to be as you, doing as human workers is continuing to think about where we can add value in this situation. And everyone needs to do this on a personal level. Where is your industry going? What are the cutting edge companies doing right now with automation, with AI? And how can you get out in front of it? What are the skills you need to develop that are still going to be important, even when you have machines taking over more and more? Okay. All right. Um, And for people who don't know what machine learning is, there's some lovely algorithms and some mathematics developed Ooh, back in the late 1990s. I think much of that was developed Mm -hmm. that lets the machine uh, for multiple iterations learn how to make a decision. And I know, for example, on loan processing, we're seeing some institutions begin to deploy machine learning to decide if the loan application is accepted or rejected, as a simple example. I bet you got better ones, though, Alexandra. Well, I mean, I think the the key thing with machine learning is that the, the machine can get better at its job on its own. Yeah. And so that's the simplest way to explain it. Instead of, well, it requires specific instructions for how to do a job. It's like it might take a job and figure out, well, I can cut off, you know, 10 minutes of time processing so that I can (laughs) do this fast, you know, 10 times faster than a human. And it wouldn't be necessarily something that a human came up with. They would just learn from experience how to slice and dice data in a, in a specific way. So that's to me the, the simplest way of explaining it. All right. Brilliantly said. I love it. Fabulous. Um, So, and for some people, I imagine that's a little scary to think that machines, you know, we start to see our future movies and, you know, machines taking over the universe and so on. At the same time, there's enormous gains that could be made from that one that release people from doing mundane work. 
Mm-hmm. So you said that the humans are still going to be needed to for judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, is this reliable? Is it accurate? Do we believe it? Does it consider all the right variables to persuade or to communicate the interpersonal skills? And, you know, some of the ethical decisions along the way as well. Is this the right thing to be doing? Okay. So we know we're going to still need humans. The question is, do we need as many of them? Mm-hmm. But every time this prediction has been in the world that humans won't be needed for as many hours, our hours, working hours seem to escalate. So I'm a little less worried about that one. But if I'm looking to future-proof my job, mm-hmm. what kind of skills should I be thinking about? This is a great question, too. And everybody should be thinking about how to future-proof their jobs, first of all. And this is not something that is limited to really any category of worker, whether you are a frontline person who's in a factory or you are a person who has traditionally been protected from this sort of thing. I I hear all the time, well, I'm an IT person. I've been strongly in demand for the past 25 years. (laughs) It's like, that's about to change because IT is the first thing that can be automated. Like computers know how other computers work. So there is nobody who can afford to not do this right now. And so what you need to be thinking about is from the perspective of your individual role, where does the software exist currently to help you do your job better? And um, in some research that I did with DeVry University, we identified this skill category as applied technology skills. So it's understanding how to use people, processes, data, and devices to do your job better. So the, where, the place you start is where is technology now in relation to my work? What can be automated? What can't? What can be done effectively by a machine or an algorithm and what can't? And then you need to figure out where is your unique value in that proposition. Now, ideally your employer is helping with this because we're teaching employers about strategic automation and how to deconstruct jobs to figure out where they should put their machines and where they should put their humans. But really the onus is also on the individual, especially if your bosses are not doing this and they don't really know, they're gonna look to you to be the expert. What software is available? What programs are are in development? What are these cutting edge vendors in your space doing? to allow you to do your job more efficiently. And a great example of this is recruiting. Recruiting has been exploding with AI technology over the last decade to, to the point where you can now use a variety of technologies to predict where your most successful hires are going to be coming from. You can predict how long they will be on the job. You can eliminate bias during your hiring process by identifying certain behaviors and language to remove it from the equation. There are all sorts of ways now that technology can facilitate the recruiting process so that the human recruiters can focus more on the interpersonal skills and connecting with candidates face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom. And that is where you need to be focusing. So it's twofold. It's on those applied technology skills, knowing how to leverage technology to do your job, And then it's on the areas where technology cannot take over. So things like having a a personal touch with a candidate. Well, no piece of software, no matter how smart it is, is going to be able to do that for you. So you're still going to need to have that that touch point with that other person. And just like we we talk about in in the legal space all the time, or I've I've had this conversation in multiple scenarios, where... A lot of legal work now can be done by machines. All the research, looking up precedents, 
But at the end of the day, does somebody really want to see a robot presenting to a judge or a jury? Like that's the part of it, the persuasion. It's going to be really hard for machines to take over. So they can do all the prep work, but they're going to still need people to sit down with clients and judges and juries and make that emotional argument. And so that's where I think every individual needs to focus. What are the machines good at? What am I good at? And how can I get better at the things that the machine isn't going to be able to do anytime soon? And that's my big message for technology folks. If if you haven't been honing your interpersonal skills because you've been relying on your tech skills, now would be a really good time to do that because your tech skills are only going to take you so far. I love that one because that speaks to my business and to your business as well, Alexander. So, you know, you keep talking about the power of persuasion, the power of deconstructing a job, being able to break down all the components that come together and see the system in a way in what can be done where and how. And then there's some competitive intelligence in terms of what's out there. How could we use it? What could this do? I mean, there's all of those com- thinking components. And now they're not just analysis, but they're systemic thinking components, I guess is my way of saying it. So if you're advising somebody who's come out of college, let's say, and they've got whatever degree they've got, and they've maybe had their first five years of experience, but they're not feeling fairly secure in the job they're in, or maybe they're even out of a job and trying to figure out what to go. What's the skill set they need to go like really drill down on? Agility is the most important thing that people can develop in themselves. The ability to pivot from one thing to another and acquire the cross-functional skills that will make it possible to do that. So things like client relations and marketing and finance, these are areas where no matter what you end up doing, you're going to need to have an understanding of those areas. And increasingly, as we talked about, companies are going to be moving people from one area to another. The jobs are not going to be functional. The jobs are going to be based on skills. So for example, you might be a data analyst. Well, right now you might be a financial data analyst. Well, in the very near future, you might be a data analyst across the country so, or, or across the company. So you need to know how it works in human resources, how it works in accounting, how it works in marketing. And so the more cross-functional expertise you can get, especially as a young person, the better off you are going to be. And fortunately, we see many more organizations helping people out with this and also tapping into your rivers of information, your areas in that are unique to you, where you can go out and learn things, taking online courses, wherever you can get that experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a formal job responsibility type of scenario. Right. Uh, This is the single biggest mistake I watch people make in their careers. They think that they're going to just climb that ladder. And, you know, all of our management literature talks about climbing the ladder and getting to the top and as if it was a singular route. And Mm -hmm. so they expect that I want to get that next promotion and the next promotion and the next promotion. And that's the motivation. Mm -hmm. But they miss in that the crossover, the taking of a core skill and applying it in different places, I think, exactly as you said. And then they aren't as fungible or as movable as they could be. But you said you can get that experience by taking online courses, but you can also get that experience by talking to your buddy who's in data and the analytics in HR as opposed to in the finance function and just trading stories. It's amazing how much you can figure out. Yeah, job shadowing is great. Just (laughs) going and spending a day with somebody and watching how they do their job. Yeah, that's easy. I mean, companies spend millions on these 
these uh, rotational programs right. where, you know, you move someone to a different country and they stay there for six months. It's like, well, it, that's nice. And it is helpful, but it doesn't have to be that way. It can be a lot more simple. Right. And that's encouraging for people who are not willing to make the bet of I'm moving halfway around the world or I'm giving up a job that I'm really good at at the moment and that is paying well. So great opportunities. Um one quick question before we go, we've got just one minute, which is what are your recommendations for companies on what they need to be doing? Oh, this is a great one. So in conjunction with Labor Day, which I know is, is two months ago now, but um, I worked on a study with DeVry University around how American workers were feeling like, it, on a day when we appreciate employees and we value the work that they do for us. And what we found is more than a third of employees, and these were people who had been employed continuously throughout the pandemic felt that their employers viewed them as disposable, mm-hmm. that they could take them or leave them, that they made them feel they were lucky to have a job and that they should kind of sit down and shut up. <laughs> and to me, this is going to be a huge problem going forward because also what you have with the pandemic is, is a rise in mental health issues right. and post-traumatic stress that are associated with a long term period of trauma. And so that combined with the fact that employees don't feel like they're valued is going to result in some serious disengagement and actually some probably some serious productivity decreases. We've got a huge rise in stress that's just natural because people have yep. children at home that are not going to school. Uh, they're doing in many time in many cases the work of two or three people. So the what the main thing that I would have employers do is show genuine appreciation to your employees. And give them opportunities to do what's best for them. So this is both from a professional development standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. You really have to start caring for the holistic employee. Because going full circle to what we said in the very beginning, and yes, it's true that you're probably not going to work for an organization for 50 years continuously anymore. But what I do think is going to remain are relationships between employers and employees. So you might go off and do your own thing for 10 years and come back and work as a contract worker for that employer. So employers shouldn't feel like, well, everything's going to be short term. So why care about these people? Because really, these are the relationships they may change. But when you have a good person who really values the vision of your organization, you want to keep that person because you never know what benefit you you all could serve to each other in the future. I think this is one of the changes that is, and we're not going to have time to talk about the millennials, but I think this is one of the big changes that's coming through from the millennials and the Gen Z generation is that, yes, I may not stay with this company for for a terribly long time, but if I've had a good experience here, I can become a customer. I can send talent to you. I may come back and want to work for you. I'm going to be a great voice of the consumer or voice for the company and the brand in the marketplace. And we get way too focused on the short-term transaction of the job you're doing for me right now to the detriment everything else. Perfectly said. Excellent. Okay. Well, at that point, Alexander, we could keep talking about all of this for an hour and a half, but it's time for us to take a break. So my guest today is Alexandra Levitt. The book that we've been talking about is Humanity Works, Merging People and Technologies for the Workplace of the Future. I love it, and I love this notion that these human skills, the judgment, the persuasion, the communication, the breaking, deconstructing jobs, the building of the relationships are the core of what we really need to begin to focus on. And then we have this notion of people owning their own career path their own development, um, and their own future, I guess. You had another one in there that I think I forgot already. Something about their job. 
<laughs> how their job is done. Their time. Time is the third one. I meant. All right. When we come back, I want to focus on one of Alexandra's other books that I happen to be a massive fan about, yeah. and it's called Blind Spots, 10 Business Myths You Can't Afford to Believe on Your Path to Success. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Alexandra Levitt, and we have just been talking about the future of work. Or maybe I should steal a phrase from Alexandra and say the future is now. So what is it work is now going to look like, and where is it going? And we've been talking about that the, with the pandemic. People are now both owning their time, owning their career, and owning their development in new ways. And we've talked about the acceleration of digitalization, whatever that is looking like for you. And we've also talked about the need for individuals to deconstruct their jobs, to take a look at the processes, the part that can be done by machines, the programs, the technologies, and to say, what of this is best done by a machine? And what is it that still needs that human touch of judgment and communication and interpersonal um, interaction. And that those are the skills, that plus agility, are the skills that are really critical for success for going forward and the willingness to move. The notion that your career is not going to look like anybody who's come before you. It's going to be a fairly unique career path for you, not just to move up the curve the way your boss moved up the curve. So I want to shift now to one of Alexandra's earlier books, Blind Spots, the 10 business myths that people get wrong. Now, she wrote this a while ago, but we were just chatting over the break and both commenting how relevant these 10 myths still are. So for the sake of expediency, I'm going to read the 10 to you, but I want to drill down on three or four of them. Myth number one, overnight success is not possible. Wait, is possible. Is possible. Excuse me, right. (laughs) Myth myth. number two, controversy will propel your career. Myth number three, employers want you to be yourself. Interesting today. 
Myth number four, being good at your job trumps everything. Myth number five, it's best to climb the ladder as fast as possible. Myth number six, you'll get more money because you earned it. Myth number seven, the problem isn't you, it's the organization. Myth number eight, you won't get laid off, you're too essential. Myth number nine, if only you could leave the corporate world, everything would be perfect. And myth number 10, do what you love and the money will follow. Now, I'm imagining people listen to that list are going, oh my God, that can't be true. How can that be a myth? <laughs> so let's drill in on a couple of these. And I want to pick up on myth number five, Alexander first. It's best to climb the ladder as fast as possible. Why is that a myth? Well, the first reason, Wanda, that I think it's a myth is that people can get in over their head. And we especially see this with the demographic shifts that are occurring. And what has happened is there is a very large generation called the baby boomers who were born roughly 1946 to 63. And there is a smaller generation that comes after them called Generation X that was born roughly 1964 to 1980. And there have not been enough Gen Xers to take over for the retiring boomers, who granted the retirement has been a little bit slower. There were the double whammies of the 2008 and 9 recession, and now you have the pandemic. A lot of the boomers have lost some of their savings, so they've been working longer, but still they're on the whole, on their way out of these traditional high-powered corporate jobs. And you do not have enough Xers to take their place. So the next generation in line is called the millennials, who are a lot bigger. They were born 1980 to 1996. And what we see because of the demographic shifts are that the millennials are entering leadership positions or have been entering leadership positions an average of 10 years earlier than prior generations. And why that's important is that the millennials in particular had a slow rise to maturity. They came of age uh, during the recession when their careers were kind of stalemated for a while in many cases, and they didn't move as quickly early on. But now they're being forced to move really, really quickly. And they may not have the wherewithal, the skills, or the desire to be in those high-powered positions at an earlier age. And then you add the stress of the fact that many of them are starting to get married and have children. They are caring for aging parents. The millennials as a whole want to maintain hobbies. They want to maintain their spirituality. In in other words, they want to have it all. And having these extremely high pressure careers is something that, that can be problematic. And so the reason this is a myth is that it's not best for everyone to climb the ladder as fast as possible. Just because you are being offered a job doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for you to do to take it when there are a lot of other factors at play. Do you feel like you have the skills to do the job well or are you being set up for failure? Do you feel like the job is conducive to the lifestyle you want to have? Do you feel like you have the the constitution or the personality to do that job? So we have to be careful. We, 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 do wanna, we don't want to encourage people to have imposter syndrome, like they, I'm not going to take this job because I'm not worthy or I, I'm not ready. But there's a balance to this. You do need to think carefully if you are, in fact, ready. So that's something that I would have said 10 years ago and did say in the book. But I would now add in the 2020 context that it is equally important, in addition to going up, that you go sideways. So you don't just want to get better and better and better at this one skill set. And you don't want to necessarily be so far away from the work 
that you don't even know what's involved in the work anymore because that makes it very hard for you to, for example, strategically automate parts of your function. If you don't know what's involved in your function because you've been leading away from it for so long, it's going to make it very hard for you to make those decisions. So staying kind of close to the work and determining, well, okay, well, what technology is coming down the pike that I need to use to do my job better? That's something that if you're a little bit at a, at a mid-senior mid level or at a junior level, an individual contributor level, it's going to be a little bit easier for you to do that. And then, of course, we talked about in the previous segment, everyone's going to have to pivot a lot because what might be marketable today might not be marketable tomorrow. And so having a broad base of transferable skills, skills that are relevant across a wide variety of industries and roles, we talked about things like finance and accounting and marketing and client relations These are things that regardless of the job you have today, you want to be looking for opportunities to gain those skills and also be exposed to a broad array of jobs. So human resources is one department in an organization. Marketing is another type of department. Finance is another department. Call center, which I hate the word call center, (laughs) but that's another area (laughs) where you're on the phones and operations, supply chain. These are all areas where you should at least be getting exposure. But again, if you're going straight up, you're probably going straight up in that one function, which may not necessarily be the best way to position yourself for a career in which you need to pivot on a moment's notice. That makes a lot of sense to me. And that ties so closely to what we said about where the future is going um, in the very beginning of the segment. All right, so I got to go to the next one here, which is also timely for today. This is myth number three. Employers want you to be yourself. Mm-hmm. In this day and age of inclusion and diversity, where we're talking about authenticity coming and going, why is that a myth? I, I love this one because there are some nuances here. So basically, I would say that the business world has improved in this area over the last several decades in that you used to have to fit very narrowly into whatever corporate culture it was you found yourself in. And you had to toe the line, figure out a way to put things in a way that wouldn't offend people. You had to be very diplomatic. You had to be, in a sense, very careful. And I think that's less of an issue now, but I still think that it's relevant because people can take it too far in bringing themselves to the workforce. You know, they want to, of course, dress the way they feel comfortable. They want to present their personal lives the way they feel comfortable. And they feel like, well, employers are are saying that they want to be inclusive. They want to be diverse. They want to take into account a variety of perspectives. But these changes don't happen overnight. And just because employers are saying that they value it doesn't necessarily mean that in practice, it's going to be 100% accepted. And so I still think it's very important to carefully consider the environment that you've now found yourself in and try to assimilate into that environment as quickly as possible because you want the focus to be on your work, not on how you are different or how you're presenting yourself in a way that, that might be distracting. And by the way, this is a whole other can of worms with the fact that we're now mostly presenting ourselves online. We don't even have the opportunity to make an impression in an in-person environment. So figuring out what's the way to present myself in this culture, in this digital medium, which is not easy to do, especially if you're a young person who just doesn't have a lot of practice Mm -hmm. with this. So yes, you should be yourself. You should bring your best self, is what I like to say, to the job. All of the things that make you you, but also make you a good employee. And anything that detracts from 
your goodness or your fit as an employee might be something that you want to, to save for the, the personal time in your life. Um, I love this question because I get this all the time. And I always think about it as you need to, you need to do things in a way that other people will hear your messages. I love it. That's perfectly said. And if what you're doing is makes it hard for people to hear the message, then you're going to be less effective, period. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that I give up me. Mm-hmm. It just means I got to hone the edges. And Carla Harris, who's at Morgan mm-hmm. Stanley, has said this better than anybody else. And she said she would always, she said, I got some, many parts of myself. There's many different pieces of me, depending on, and mm-hmm. she I had to learn how to dial up one for one constituent and dial back one for another constituent. I just had to think what more of me is going to work better here, what less of this part of me is going to work in that situation. I think that's what you mean here that's, as well. That's brilliant. That's probably okay. couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, I probably did say something just like that one. Okay, so let's go to myth number seven. The problem isn't you, it's the organization. Or let me give my latest favorite version. The problem isn't you, it's your manager. Mm-hmm. Why is yeah, that a myth? This is a tough one. It's easy to take this stance that you're in the right and that you've been wronged either by an organization or by a manager who's being unfair. And the truth is, and I, I think I say this in the book, Blind Spots, life isn't fair. There are going to be circumstances in every job that are less than palatable for you. There may very well be situations where could it have worked out better for you? Should it have worked out better for you? Perhaps, but it didn't. So it doesn't really do yourself any good when you take the perspective of being a victim. And what you end up doing when you're a victim is moving around to see if you can find a different situation. And one of the ways that I see this being dangerous today is if you're working in a particular organization that you think hasn't handled the pandemic particularly well, or going back to that Dubai research, feels that has treated you like you're disposable. And you think that, well, if I just found another organization, I would be valued. And that might be true. But before you do that, I encourage you to take a hard look at yourself. What could you do a little bit differently or a little bit more effectively? Maybe it's, like you said, Wanda, in the delivery of your message that could make it be more acceptable to people. Because if we're not willing to change and grow ourselves, no one's going to want to help us as much as we want to help ourselves. And no one's going to be as dedicated to our careers as we are. (laughs) So we have to be the ones in the end that take responsibility for that. And if you don't take responsibility, if you're looking to blame somebody else or blame an organization or blame a culture, you're going to find yourself taking, my grandmother used to say, you take yourself with you. And that has really resonated because that's what I did in my first several careers. I thought, well, you know, if I didn't work in a PR agency, I wouldn't have to have this kind of stress. Or if I didn't work in a Fortune 500 company that had shareholders, I wouldn't have to be worrying about this. It's like, but but politics exists in every organization, in every type of organization, in every industry. You're going to find the same stuff as long as you're working with other human beings. And even when you're working with a mix of humans and machines, they're going to be the same issues. The only person you can control is yourself. So you have to look at how can I be better? And how can I avoid making the same mistakes I made earlier? And that's really all you can ask. But blaming others, blaming organizations is probably just going to unfortunately facilitate the repeat of the same types of situations over and over, which of course, if they're not good situations, you don't want to do. That's what I see. I see people leave one organization and one scenario and find themselves back in that same scenario again. 
Mm-hmm. And then a comparable scenario again. And then you have to sort of say, wait a minute, what is it? There's a common denominator here. How do we exactly. do something about that one? That takes maturity though, Wanda, don't you think? It's I, boy, I, it takes a hard look in the mirror and it's yeah. not very pleasant. Yeah. The other thing you triggered this one for me is this notion of not feeling valued. You know, the DeVries um, research that you mentioned earlier. I think a lot of us are not feeling valued the way we would like to feel valued. Mm-hmm. So I go and call a headhunter and um, I go for job interviews and they all make me feel so important and so special and so valued. And there's this euphoria for somebody else wants me. Okay. Mm-hmm. The only problem is, of course, they would do that because they're trying to hire you. Question is, what does it look three years down the line inside that corporation? So do you see that as a common theme? I do. And the one thing that I would suggest to people strongly is when they're interviewing, and this is granted harder to do even now with with everything being online and digital, is to try and get a sense of the culture before you take a job. So you're not just going by what the manager or the HR person says, but you are looking at Glassdoor, for example. That's a great, simple resource to check out what are employees actually saying. <laughs> and you can look at the website too, although you're going to see more often portrayed the happy people. Um, Glassdoor, I think, gives people um, more of a, it's, it's more of an equal playing field. And try and get a sense of the retention, if you mm-hmm. can, within the organization. I mean, the best way to tell if people are happy is, are they sticking around? Like what's the tenure? And and granted, we were saying that the tenure in every organization is shortening, but are they a little bit ahead of other organizations that are in similar industries? Are they listed on the great places to work? Because those great places to work lists are terrific because they measure on a variety of, of areas that you might not have individual data on, but they've done the work for you. So look at as many data points as you can. Don't just rely on the initial feeling you get from the organization. Um, Also ask people what's your daily life going to be like working Mm -hmm. in the organization, because I I think that that, even if the organization is the best place in the world, if your daily work is not satisfying to you or it's not what you thought you would be doing or it's at a lower level or a higher level than what you thought, that can easily lead to immediate dissatisfaction. So try to get an accurate picture of what your job's going to be like and what your opportunities for growth are. And only then can you you make the decision. And sometimes it's the right decision and sometimes it isn't. But I believe in every organization, even if you are working the cashier at McDonald's, you can learn these transferable skills that we've been talking about. Things like time management and multitasking and um, customer relations So there is something to be learned for every job. So even if you find yourself in a situation where it's not ideal, it's not exactly what you thought, what can you learn from the experience and and what can you take out of it? Yeah, I think that's that's certainly true. I see an awful lot of people, too, following a manager that they adore, Mm -hmm. that they like a lot. Maybe adore is a strong word, but that they really like and that has been good to them and has looked after their career. And so when the manager moves or they go to join that manager at a new firm and then question is, does that manager stick around? And they don't do the due diligence on the rest of the culture. Mm-hmm. So if the manager leaves or gets promoted, who are you now working with? And is that the place you wanted to be or not be? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Especially because maybe the manager's not doing their due diligence on, on this new job opportunity. So, And sometimes it's a promotion opportunity, yeah. which means that they're yeah. just not now being able to look after you. And I've also seen people going back to their university alumni network to say who works here or who did yeah. work here yeah. and what was their experience with the company. And we come right back to what you said in the first segment about 
people, the relationship and the yep. long-term relationship you have with your employees and how important that is. LinkedIn is good too for identifying people who did work, do work in, in an organization. And I always like to say, talk to people who are in your level or just ahead of you and in your function, because it could vary wild, wildly from one area of the company to another and from one geography to another. I mean, it's not as important in this exact moment, but if we ever do go back to in-person work in some capacity, the geography or the office culture could make a big difference. Great. All right. I have to do one last one because everybody's talking about purpose at the moment. Purpose, purpose, purpose. You know, having finding purpose is something that I love. And you've got two minutes to talk about it. Myth number 10, do what you love and the money will follow. Oh, my gosh, Wanda. This is a tough one because, of course, you want to be satisfied and enjoy your job. But what I like to say to people is there's a reason it's called work. Otherwise, it would be called play. (laughs) Uh, There's a time to focus on things that are going to make money and a time to focus on things that you just genuinely enjoy. And sometimes when you combine the two, you find out that the hobby is no longer as fun as it used to be because now you've got all of the the business stuff associated with it. So it's not necessarily good to be doing your passion full-time or trying to do it full-time. Instead, what you should be looking for is more of a middle ground, like so many things in this world, right? There's There's a happy medium. And so you don't want to loathe your job you want it to be challenging. You want it to be rewarding. You want to work with good people. But at the same time, there's something to be said for having a personal life in which you pursue things that might not be as marketable or might not immediately make you money and to keep those things separate. And I think doing what you love and the money will follow. Well, the problem with that one is, is a lot of things that are fun don't make money. And a lot of people are not necessarily as good at the business aspect of it or the thing that they love doesn't have a a large market associated with it. There's not a large need for it. And so it's going to be hard to to start a business. And then, of course, the business skills that are necessary to maintain a business. These are things that people don't really think about a lot. But what I would say is really great about the world we're living in now is there's so many opportunities to do what you love. And people use this example of book writing with me all the time. They ask, you know, I want to write a book because it's a passion. Well, it's easier to write and publish a book than it ever was before. And you don't have to do it as a career and you don't have to make money for, from it. And it doesn't really cost you anything. So it's, there are just so many more opportunities to both infuse your, your paid work with meaning, but also to infuse your non-paid work with, you know, some daily life that, that is a lot easier given to current technology and systems available. Alexander, you may be the first consultant I've spoken to who says you don't always have to have your deep sense of satisfaction, purpose, and meaning joy at work necessarily. Yeah. It can be in other pursuits, and that can be okay. And I actually yeah. think that's a lovely place to stop. Mm-hmm. All right. My guest today, Alexandra Levitt. The books we've been talking about is Humanity Works, Merging People and Technologies for the Workplace of the Future, as well as this last one, Blind Spots, 10 Business Myths You Can't Afford to Believe in Your Path to Success. Alexander, thank you for being a guest on the show. Thanks for having me, Wanda. It was fun. Delightful conversation. And join us next week for more ep- for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone. And if you'd like to hear more about Alexandra's advice, check out our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 